Hey, I want to thank you for checking out uh, the sermons at Coastal Community Church online. And uh, we are really happy to make these available to you uh, for your spiritual nourishment. But one of the things we have a deep conviction of is that we hope that these sermons are a supplement to your spiritual growth, but also a supplement to you having a home church. And so if uh, you do not live in this area, we would really encourage you uh, to join with a local church where you can serve the Lord together alongside of other believers. Uh, if you don't have a local church and you live in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love to have you check out Coastal Community Church. We have uh, three services, uh, 8:15, 9:45, and 11:15, and we'd love for you to join us at one of those services. Hey, we want to invite you out for the Christmas season. I hope you'll join us. We're doing a series called Pictures of Christmas, uh, and we are going to be looking at Christmas through the eyes of different people in the New Testament and the Old Testament as we celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. We also hope you'll join us on Christmas Eve. We are going to do a candle lighting service. It's a family service. Uh, I think it'll be a great time for you, your family, and your children. We have two services on Christmas Eve, 3 o'clock, 5 o'clock. It will be full, so let me encourage you to get here early and ring in the holidays. Um, joining us at Coastal Community Church this Christmas with our series, Pictures of Christmas. At Christmas time, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the, the what of Christmas. Right? The what of Christmas is that, that Jesus was born. And a lot of times, our, uh, our explanation of Christmas, it, it kind of stops right there. And my desire this morning is, is to briefly share with a few minutes that I have with you the why of Christmas. I want to answer the question, why was Jesus born? And the Lord in His sovereignty, He may give you an opportunity to, to talk about the why of Christmas with your relatives over, over, over a Christmas dinner this, thurs this Thursday. Why, why did Jesus have to come, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, rise from the grave? Right? Why was Jesus born? Why was he born of a virgin? What does a baby being born 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with us? Why does it affect us now 2,000 years removed? In other words, why should we care at all about a baby being born in Bethlehem? Why should we celebrate at this time of year? Those why questions, they're important. They're important because what, what happened doesn't matter to someone if you can't understand and articulate why it is that it happened. And so over the next few moments, we're going we're gonna to answer those why questions. And like I said, I hope and pray that you can use it as a tool when you engage with conversations as the Lord allows you to over the Christmas holidays and over the New Year holidays, when you engage with, with some of your friends and family who, who may not uh, be Christians. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalm, Psalm chapter 14 to be exact. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can Grab the one in the seat in front of you, or you can just engage with us up here at the screen. But Psalm chapter 14 is where we're going to camp out for just a few moments. And again, I promise to be brief. But this is what the psalmist says. He says, The fool says in their heart, there is no God. They're corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? 
There they are in great terror, for the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And I love this part. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Anything that God says once in Scripture is extremely important. Amen? All he has to say is, he just has to say it one time. But when God says something twice, we know it's something of, of, of significance, don't we? But what if God says something three times? Psalm 53 and Romans 3 are almost a word-for-word repetition of, of, this, of this psalm that I just read to you this morning. God, God is serious about us grasping this truth, and we should pay close attention to it. I love the, the way the, the Book of Common Prayer says this. It says we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And that's what I hope we do with this psalm this morning as, as we engage and approach the Christmas season. So let me draw your attention to just a few points this morning, and then the music team, they're going to come up, and they're going to have more Christmas songs to share with you. But I want you just briefly with me to look at verse 1. This is the fool's confession, according to Psalm. It says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Okay, in the original language, the, the, the readers of this psalm would have read it this way. The fool says in his heart, no, God. The there is isn't, isn't there in the original language. The fool says in his heart, no, God. And this isn't just a, a, a theoretical declaration that there's no God. It's practical, okay? We see this because of the second half of the verse. It says, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good, okay? The, the, the fool here isn't someone who's convinced that God doesn't exist. An atheist and an agnostic, they don't really exist according to the scriptures. Not, not really. The fool here, it means someone who's aggressively and intentionally flouts his independence from God and his commandments. The fool denies practically, okay, through his actions that God doesn't exist. That's the biblical definition of a fool. The Apostle Paul, he explains it a bit more in Romans chapter 1. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, get this, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are what? Without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If this could be commentary to Psalm 14. This, this, is, this is our commentary 
when we're aiming to define what a fool is biblically. This is the definition of an atheist or an agnostic. According to the scripture, they don't truly exist. Because what can be known about God is evident. It's evident to them. They suppress the truth about God. And they exchange the truth for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Why do they do that? Why do they suppress the truth about God? It's because they love their rebellion. They love their life apart from God. You see, man, man apart from Christ doesn't, doesn't, doesn't stand condemned for their individual sins. Their individual sins are just a symptom of an even bigger problem. And according to Romans 1, it's that they suppress the truth about God. That's a fool. We could spend all morning just talking about the biblical definition of a fool, and maybe I'll, I'll get the opportunity somewhere down the road. But for time's sake, let's keep moving. Look, verses 2 through 3 here give the Lord's perspective on the fool. Okay, so we, we see the, the, the anthem of the atheist. And now we're seeing God's perspective. And it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. And many of you may be familiar with this passage because the Apostle Paul uses it in Romans chapter 3 to demonstrate to both Jew and Gentile that this is the condition of all men. So get this, the, according to the Scripture, we're all fools. We're all fools, including myself. Even the most religious person in this room this morning is a fool. And why is that? Because if left to ourselves, we live like the atheist. That's our condition apart from Christ. Remember, there's no such thing in, in, as a person who's convinced there's no God. That's why the psalmist strategically uses the word fool. James Montgomery Boyce, he's a pastor who's, who's passed away, but he says, if a person knew there were no God and said so, he would be wise and perhaps even courageous for standing against the nearly universal but mistaken opinions of the human race. If he did not know whether there was a God and said so, he would at least be an honest skeptic or agnostic. If a person is convinced there's no God when actually there is one, he's merely mistaken. But none of these is the case. The reason the person is a fool and not merely mistaken is that he knows there's a God and yet chooses to believe and act as if there is none. And we're guilty of acting and behaving as if there's no God. Therefore, the label of fool is applied to each one of us in this building. The psalmist, he uses strong language. He says, they have all turned aside. There is none good, not even one. Not even one. No one's off limits in this description. Amen? And at the point, I, this is a weighty thing to talk about, right? This is Christmas, and, we, and we, this, this isn't the, the stuff that we really want to think about and address, but this is a part of answering the why question, why Christ had to come. This makes me feel the weight of my rebellion, right? Joey, apart from the intervening work of God, loves rebellion. I love rebellion. That's my condition apart from Christ. I'm a fool who suppresses the knowledge that I have that God exists and the knowledge that I'm going to give an account to him one day for the things that I've done in this life. I love and I cherish the idols in my life. That's my condition apart from Christ. That's your condition apart from Christ. 
Continue to look with me over the next couple of verses. It says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Okay, we we begin to see a shift toward the end of this passage. Right? The Lord is a refuge, according to this passage. And, And the text says he's a refuge to his people. The generation of the righteous, the poor. That's who God's a refuge to. And I tell, this, I tell people this often, but I love that word refuge. I love that the scriptures des- describe God as a refuge for his people. It reminds me of safety. Like I know I'm safe in Christ. Right? He, he's, he's our refuge in the midst of severe trials. He's our refuge when we're tempted to sin. He's our refuge, get this, from his wrath. God is our refuge from his wrath. And why is this? And also, how how do we shift from being fools to being labeled as his people or the generation of the righteous or the poor? How How do we shift from fools to being found in the refuge of God? And what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Look with me in this final verse, and I'll, I'll close us out. I love this verse. It says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is a complete shift from the first several verses, and I'm thankful for that. Amen. The psalmist here, he concludes the psalm with trust and confidence in the Lord's deliverance of the fool. Speaking of this this particular verse, one pastor says this. He says, it's not possible for us to get to that quiet position of trust and confidence by ourselves. If we've understood this psalm rightly, we know that we're in the exact same position of those who cry out, there is no God unless God himself makes his person and ways known to us. How did God make his person in ways known to us? He did it through Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus, the Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through 31 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, right? That's the remedy of, of the fool is, is wisdom. And it says that Jesus is the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why does the birth of a baby have an impact on us 2,000 years later? It's because that baby is God in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. Jesus' birth, it wasn't the start of Jesus. Jesus has always existed because he's God. Colossians puts it this way. He's the image, speaking of Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him All things hold together. God looked down at fools. He wrapped himself in flesh. He was born of a virgin. He had our sins cast on himself and had his righteousness cast on those who repent of their sin and trust in him. 
and believe in him. That's the significance of Christmas. God came and dwelt among men because we were incapable of changing our position as fools. That's the answer to the why about Christmas. In closing, let me just put it one more way that I pray will encourage you. Adam, the first man ever created, right? He was, he was our, our federal representative. Okay, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Okay, think of Adam as, as this, of Senator Mark Warner and, and Senator Tim Kaine. There are senators in Virginia. When they go and they cast their vote, we vote with them whether we agree with their vote or not. Okay, Adam, in Adam, we all sinned and were born into sin because of it. That's why it was significant that Jesus was born of a virgin. He, Jesus wasn't born into sin. He had no sin nature like we do. That's the significance of the virgin birth. We're born in sin, and because of that, we commit actual sins, okay? Jesus, in Romans chapter 5, is called the second Adam. And that's significant for us as Christians. That's huge for us. Because when just as the, the sins of Adam were, were, were imputed to us, were cast on us, we, we sinned with Adam. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that we... Uh, so are, are, are Christ's actions cast on to us. So when we repent and we believe the gospel, it's not that Jesus lived a perfect life, died, and then bodily and eternally rose from the grave. It's as if we lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again. That's, the, that's how closely um, Christ's works are with us so that when, when, when we stand before God one day, he doesn't see us and our sin and our mess. He sees the perfect works of Jesus Christ. As a Christian, Jesus is your representative. Jesus is your representative. So that's why a baby being born 2,000 years ago is significant for the church. And my prayer is, is that that will encourage you and that you'll be able to engage in conversations with those who don't know Christ as Savior to say, man, you're settling for something so much less. You're just, you're just living in Adam's transgressions. Let me teach you about living in the righteous actions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that... that that his actions are credited to us, Lord. You look down at us as helpless fools, Lord, and you didn't leave us in that position, God, but you came and you lived and you died and you rose again, and those actions are imputed to those who repent and believe the gospel. And so, God, I pray that the gospel would be heavy on our hearts this morning, that it would be heavy on our hearts as we go throughout our week, Lord. Help us to look for opportunities to talk about this precious gospel message that you've entrusted to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.